Conversations with me, Gillian Knight, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. Today's guest is the very talented sculptor, painter, writer, curator, teacher, mentor, and all-round decent person, Rosalind Davis. Her art practice is all about reconfiguration of architectural space and has gone through its very own transformation over the past few years, from the exterior of government buildings, particularly social housing blocks, to interior structures. I find in her work that we get a real first-hand sense of the physical and psychological aspects of space. Rosalind has a well-deserved reputation for being a supportive practitioner amongst her peers, and since graduating from the Royal College, she's dedicated herself to building her own down-to-earth, co-supportive art community. Today, she's chosen a mystery fiction for our conversation. A Painter of Our Time was written by Booker Prize winner and renowned art critic John Berger. Here's a quick synopsis. Expatriate and Hungarian painter Janos Levin has suddenly disappeared. The narrator, who we know as John, finds and reads Janos's hidden diary, and we're taken on a journey spanning the art industry of London in the mid-1950s. We meet collectors, artists and galleries as we learn of the complicated loves and artistic anguish Janos endures. He intermittently describes his personal struggle to balance his socialist passions with capitalist consumption, as well as the fickleness of fashion which permeates his artistic circles. This becomes his ultimate undoing, as well as his doorway to freedom. Welcome, Rosalind Davis, first of all. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for asking me. Uh, so we're recording this in lockdown. I don't know how it's going to go and I don't know how the audio is going to sound. So uh, we'll do our best and I hope it'll be good enough to listen to. Uh, and that all shall be forgiven. Talking about books, are you much of a reader, Rosalind? Did you read a lot growing up? Reading was like a massive solace and it was so transporting and I was a real um, bookworm so much so that I used to get told off for it if you can believe such a thing for wanting to read in cars and not look out the window yeah and I just devoured books it slowed a little bit just because of life and work balance isn't what it should be but what actually has been nice in amongst the anxiety of our current COVID is that I've been rereading A, this book, A Painter of Our Time, also rereading Wolf Hall and, and kind of allowing myself time to read because I don't, I haven't been. My mum and dad have always been massive readers as well, so it seems to run in the family. Reading was a place to escape as much as anything, you know, reading fantasy and all sorts, um, historical novels or whatever it may be, and losing myself in that really. And that was helpful in lots of ways, I think. To learn as well, obviously, but I think sort of emotionally to take me to somewhere else at times where I needed it. And sometimes that will be poetry. Sometimes it will be other things that I find cathartic at times, really. Well, can I just say that I'm impressed that you're rereading Wolf Hall because I, don't, I haven't <laughs> even managed to read it once. The first time. I got halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> I think what happens is that I can gobble things up I was talking about it with my mum when I was talking about this podcast and I was like it's it's quite nice to sort of let it simmer and because I wanted to read the latest Hilary Mantel I need to kind of re-familiarise myself with Thomas Cromwell and the time I mean it's a time I've read a lot about anyway in the past but 
pouring over the language, which is, again, what I've been doing with The Painter of Our Time. It's been lovely to reread. And then why did you choose it for this podcast? When I read it, I found it so resonating with my own experiences and also other people's experience of being in the art world, being a painter. I thought, wow. And it was written, you know, in the 50s. And it resonates now in contemporary times. The things that John Mm. Berger writes about, such as like the art world system, the gallery system, and about this character who is complicated, it immediately came to my mind. And I think it was one that I thought would have one of the better discussions maybe than a fictional book, a uh, different kind of fictional book. That It brought up questions about resilience and endurance and the ego of the artist. <laughs> That's interesting that you slightly stumbled over the term fiction because it is like that. Yes, it's a fictional character. Janos is an artist and John is the narrator. I gather he's some sort of academic. I think he's... John Birch. <laughs> well, know. yeah, as well as being this fictional story, it's like a platform for John Birch's take on the art world and take on socialism and his take on being a post-war immigrant. So it's quite a platform for his belief system. So yes, it's fictional, but it's also non-fiction in a way as well. Exactly. I can't sort of put it better. Really. It feels much more like a biography, you mm. know. So I started reading the book and Page one, literally, I'm right into your artwork because John, the narrator, I'm just going to refer to him as the narrator because once you start talking about John Berger, there are just so many directions to go in, his films, his life, so many books. Ways of Seeing is a book that's typically referred to every art student, so I'm going to call him the narrator. Anyway, the narrator goes into Janos's studio and straight away... He's referring to the space and being in the room, walking into the space, the boundaries of the space, the dynamics of the space, what is active in the space and what is still. And I am right back at No Format Gallery, seeing your installation piece and thinking about that structure that you created with the Perspex panels in it. So perhaps you could talk about that. Being able to walk into a space and then walk around the space and be able to negotiate that work, which was constantly changing. Well, I have been making these installations and they relate back to my paintings about space. Um, And I was thinking with that exhibition about how you navigate space and opening it up and then closing it down and... Mm. That was a also an installation that changed every day multiple times. We had a closing and that was the sort of final iteration, so to speak. So it was about studying the light. Sometimes I would make it obstacle light and sort of go right across the space and, and look at how the light changed and the shadows changed, how I could also create illusionistic images from the way that I was playing with the perspective in the space that changed the piece. It was how I would also arrange it so that I could take photos and it goes back into a 2D plane. Can you just talk about a little bit about the construction of the piece, how it's made? That installation is made up of a large steel structure with multiple frames, squares, rectangles and so on. The larger frame was the kind of body, the main component in which everything else revolved around and it can go on its side, um, it can be switched around totally so it becomes door-like or it could become wall-like. Um, mm. And then within that I would position other frames but also 
in that installation was these sheets of perspex that I would use within those frames to bring light. You know, I put one up across the window so that there would be this kind of golden luminous light coming in. And there were luminous yellow. So there's this thing called live edge perspex, which means it glows at the side. And then I had these sort of grey, purple, opaque sheets of perspex. So it was yellow, mm. essentially, mm. the colour wise, it was kind of yellows and greys. And the floor was concrete, the walls were white. So, yeah, it was about animating that space from multiple perspectives. So it was important, it was modular, that I would move things, that I would use this as a way to experiment with the elements, take Mm. away, put things back. And it was a really fun piece to experience because there was no one way to experience either. You really need to walk around it. You got a sense that you could see it all at the one time, which is this odd thing in a way for sculpture. But of course, you can't see it from every angle at the same time. And it really needed to be seen from every angle. It had that element to it as well, that you were part of the story of the piece of work. You also paint and thinking about your paintings in the book where Janos, the painter, is talking about the colour red. And I'm just going to read out a little bit of it. Red like radishes when you wash them under a tap and then open your hand to see if they are clean. Red, brick red, like a girl's nipples in love. The same red as the hills of Calabria. Red like the hands of a woman scrubbing. Red like paprika. Red like nothing. Red that is simply a colour on a canvas. Red that has many layers of meaning as there are red objects in the world. There is no red in the waves. I must wait for another canvas. And the waves is, of course, the first painting that he is painting when we come across him or the story of him. And I was thinking then about your first three red paintings. No one lives in the real world, strange lands and echo chamber. So these also concentrate on red. And red is an interesting colour because... On the one hand, it's often given at art school as, you know, describe red as a way of saying that the same thing will have many different perspectives from different people. But of course, red is also very political and Janos is a dedicated socialist. So it's a reference as well to communism. I wondered if you might talk about those paintings a little bit and open them up a bit for us. Again, there's a lot of symbolism in the colour, whether that's in painting or in real world, a passion of love and danger. <laughs> They're probably and both, as... both the same thing, aren't they? Love and danger? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's interesting you brought that up. Um, I started using red. I had been quite monochromatic. In that's right. And, yeah. and I started to introduce red as a counterbalance to those other powerful colours. There was a reference to real world things. So there's the Reetfield chairs around the 1950s modernist chair. People will know it if they see it. it's a very classical chair. Um, it's also a ridiculous chair because it's also not a chair. It's an artwork. Um, and I was taking my colour references from those sorts of inputs. So on the Reetfield chair, there's red and there's yellow and there's black and there's white. A bit like a Mondrian paintings and kind mm. of stripping down colour. My colour was coming from 1950s reference points because I'd been painting 1950s buildings initially from the outside and then becoming much more about internalised space. But the red as well 
came from real world places. They came from places I've been. There's a place called Key Bramley in Paris that was designed by Jean Nouvel, and it's got the most incredible underside of a building, which is reds and peaches and, you know, these kind of beautiful colours. So it's taken from the real world, but it was also brought in in Echo Chamber, and no one lives in the real world, when Mm. I was using it as a biographical element to express my inner self. Mm. And what I was going through at that point in time, the love and the danger. (laughs) Mm. So it kind of stands in for those things too, in a way. And combining that with something that's very architectural and very hard-edged at the same time. Love and passion are fuzzy, (laughs) unboundaried, dangerous things, as you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of containing and controlling them, I suppose, in those ways. And No One Lives in the Real World was based on this building's colour from the key branding colour and then combined with a building that I'd photographed in Madrid called Keisha. And again, it's the underside of a building. So I suppose the underside maybe represents the internal. Mm. That If you dare to look, you know, um, under the building, you find a whole completely different exterior to what the, the, the front of these buildings look like. So the front of Keisha, it's got a garden growing down the front of it. And then the underside is this very hard-edged metal echo chamber of mirrors. So I was bringing two different buildings and two different worlds and times and places together in those paintings. Mm. So when you're thinking about those sort of paintings, if I can just go back to the book for a moment, the interesting thing the narrator talks about in the room is that the painting that he can see that Janos has been working on has in a way already left its references that were perhaps alive in Janos's mind when he was creating the painting. And so in that sense, he states that the painting has an independence and he talks about the independent life of the painting. So you're talking about architecture and you're talking about buildings and something you were going through at the time. Do you feel once the painting has finished that it has its own life then, that it's quite separate in a way from all the input, all the history? It has to then stand on its own two feet. Yeah, I do see them as almost like they've been born at that point when you finish yeah, them. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I, I meant to say about red, but there's also another symbolism of what red paint is made from. So it's made from precious things. It's made from shells and butterfly wings. And butterfly wings sort of again romantically it's like a kind of soft kiss or butterfly wing and it takes a very long time to make so it's quite a precious material as well red pigment you're referring to i use it in oil paint format but where it's come from where it's previously mixed i think when the painting is finished it feels yeah as if it's been born or it's a child or something and it goes out into the world (laughs) hopefully maybe that's a real thing isn't it that you want the painting to go out into the world i always think that the idea of wrapping a painting up in storage especially because you end up wrapping it up in bubble wrap i don't know about you and the idea that it's plastic and that it can't breathe it seems so asphyxiating to me and sad and then it's going to gather dust but it's the same in a museum where the paintings are in storage they become stagnant then they don't have a life really they have a life in waiting yes having them go out into the world is to have other people feel about them and Mm. think about them and maybe fall in love with them yeah i i love that it can be transporting for other people because when i am making it i am transported by it yeah and it's a bit like being lost in a book in another place 
all of my paintings have a kind of their titles like no one lives in the real world it's about my life and they're often about psychological states and at the same time being quite architectural and hard-edged and some people may often think that works that look like mine which are quite abstract and geometric aren't about emotions that you need to be like Pollock and having a fit and (laughs) (laughs) massive melodramatic gestural thing and actually Mm. my pets are very emotional and you don't need to know that necessarily like you can sort of decide not to know these things about paintings but I guess that's why we're having this conversation yeah that there is more and if you look at a title that can be a real clue and that's what I try to do Yeah, although it's funny you should mention Pollock because I think his works are really actually very structured in the same way that Tom Apt's paintings might be very spontaneous, even though they look structured. So that's always a bit of a game that artists play and might know a little bit more about. So you were talking before about the art going out into the world and I was thinking about the two exhibitions that are portrayed in the book and in the first exhibition, Janos decides to do this exhibition because it's going to temporarily give him more space in the studio to paint, which I think is fantastic. Otherwise, he's really uninterested. But by the time he prints his catalogue and he rents the space and he gets things framed, it ends up costing him money. And I think that's probably a little known fact in art is that a lot of exhibitions actually cost the artist money to exhibit. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because you've gone into experimental spaces and you've got into galleries and you've got a good experience in both worlds. Yeah, when I read that passage again, I just laughed because I... <laughs> Nothing's changed. It is how the art world is still, you know, as I say, 70 years later. Absolutely. Um, My work costs a lot of money to make in sort of semi-modest terms. Giant sculptural installations that require steel and fabricators and massive sheets of Daibon. So just before the COVID-19 shut down two exhibitions that I'm in, the accumulation of how much that costs just actually in materials was about probably upwards of £1,500, and that's not including labour, time, and both those have no audiences. But the thing that's different from me in terms of just trying to get stuff out of the studio is that these shows are about pushing boundaries in our work because I now collaborate with my partner, Justin Hibbs, and we want every time that we create an installation to respond to a different space. And if you're going to respond the different space, which is site-specific, to the different elements and the different architecture, then you can't just bring along the same piece of work, which means we bring in new elements and we have a show at JGM Gallery where we've made a sculptural installation that was to fit a particular area and had its different challenges because the area was a lot smaller than how we've been accustomed to be working, which is mm. using quite a lot of room spatially. So we had to make something that's like one metre by 140. So how did we then yeah. bring the massive elements of our work where you could walk around it into a much smaller contained space and containment and still have the reasons why we're making it to kind of explore the illusions that we can create in the work. We use a lot of mirrors in our work 
So along with the sort of spatial elements of the work that we talked about earlier, which was called House Constructive, we are then defying things in a different way and disorienting things in an even more extended way so you don't know where you are in the work. It's much more disorienting than, say, that earlier work was more about a spatial experience. They're both still spatial experiences, but much more illusionistic. And also the sort of two-pronged nature of this is the artifice and illusion of the art world and what's being laid out in John Berger's book about this illusion. You know, and people might think that you've just been given a gallery space and you're getting loads of money from it. <laughs> Sometimes you get help with some things, but most of the time, if you want to make the work and be ambitious with the work, you've got to put in your own money. Hmm. We have questions where we think, can we buy this big sheet of dye bond? <laughs> but we already know the answer to that question is we have to. That's how we move the work along. I'm glad you jumped ahead of me a little bit there and introduced your partner, Justin Hibbs. I've seen quite a bit of your work that you've created together, most recently at the Couple Project. So that's a permanent thing now? You're not now creating work on your own like you did at No Format Gallery? I am, but we've been working collaboratively for a while because it's a lot more fun <laughs> to expand on both of our practices and to sort of have wider conversations that pushes, pushes us maybe beyond what we can do on our own, which has also been a political statement. When we first collaborated, I was asked to come back to No Format Gallery a year later after the show that you okay. saw. And I said, do you want to come and do this with me too? And bring your mirrors and let's play and like see what happens and make it more of a formal collaboration, I suppose. And it was really, we felt successful. It wasn't modular in the same way. The show was called Border Control. So at that point in time as well, politically, Brexit was happening. And from our position, we were sort of talking about how both of our works were reflected in each other and they intervened on one another and that made it a stronger relationship in materials and in the collaboration and the outcome. Mm. That reflected our kind of political stance of feeling like borders should be open that had different iterations really. And what's quite interesting is that my steel structures that I talked about before, they bring in a stability in the mirrors that Justin brings and they kind of play off in this very interesting way. It just means that we can enrich one another and we still have independent practices. When we do independent things, I won't have Justin's mirrors in my work, although there are sometimes elements of some of his materials. But in his work, he won't have the still structures that your work brings. Yeah, like he wouldn't borrow one of my still structures to put in his work, although there's nothing to say he can't, but he works a lot of the time more two-dimensionally. It comes from also very different places in terms of our thinking. My work often references buildings, whereas his comes from a different thinking. I couldn't really speak exactly for him on that. His is much more internalised, sometimes relating to music and other art world references. You were talking before about the stability that your side of the contribution brings. And that had me thinking about, there's actually quite a few comments in the book about lines and the weight of lines and the heaviness or fineness of lines. There is reference to the idea of structure and movement. Actually, I think it occurs in two ways. One is that Janos is talking about the life of the work and its interaction with visitors. And he is saying that the painting is not the event. The event is the way it is welcomed by others. In other words, the way we interact with a work is what the event is rather than the work itself. 
And also there's a part where I'm just going to read it out. It's easy to contrast structure with movement, but to make structure become movement, the cubists discovered the problem, but they only outlined the answer. And that had me thinking about the collaborations, particularly with you and Justin, because they do become quite complex. It does very much seem to be the visitor that, along with the work, creates the event, as well as the movement in it. In fact, I did a yoga session this morning. You did a dance session. I did a yoga session. And uh, in my practice, we had a moment of stillness and my yoga instructor referred to it as a dynamic stillness. And I loved that term. And I thought of all the sort of reconfigurations of your work and how even when I'm seeing it in a particular way, it does have a dynamic stillness to it because I know that we're reliant on one another. The work is reliant on me and I am reliant on the work to have this interaction, to have this experience. Do you want to talk a little bit about those sort of ideas? And that's a great word, dynamic stillness. I, yeah, I, Let's I steal work. it and claim it as our own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. The audience activates it very much, although we always photograph it without people in it. Yeah. <laughs> Which for our official photographs, obviously for social media, it's a different thing. Well, you have shown those big photographs as well in Coffee is my Not My Cup of Tea or what is it, the place? Coffee is My Cup of Tea. Yeah. yeah. They're amazing. They're like mazes, amazing mazes. Yeah. And that was a really interesting challenge to take our 3D sculpture and be given a wall space but want to bring the sculpture back and so we fabricated together various photographs of the installation in our studio and then made it into a 2D artwork. It had the same effect as actually the sculpture which is what we were trying to achieve and again it was one of those expensive projects where we were like okay we've got to get a massive three meter wall vinyl that we may never be able to use it again although we have actually used it as a backdrop to now put a sculpture on and then taken a photo of that and that's become a photograph that we're going to well a series of photographs that we'll use at some point. I know this is slightly off tangent, but part of the making of the work is the element of the ways it can surprise us and hopefully surprise or disorient the viewer or surprise them about what they're going to see or what they might expect to see. When I started making these installations, firstly on my own and then with Justin, it's like it's an endless composing device for you, for me. And unlike a painting that becomes quite fixed, even if it is got lots of depth, I just mean that it's fixed on a surface you can continuously change it or again all the different perspectives that you might see as you walk around it and it's also how you might interact with it so some people have crawled on the floor and crawled around it <laughs> or kids you know how they're different heights at the exhibitions I've also encouraged people to take photos because it brings a whole different element seeing it through you know your device your phone and it brings a different perspective than what you can visually also take in you then have another kind of composing device so I think that's really exciting about it for me and for Justin and hopefully for the audience that you could go back and the light will be different it will be different again you crouch it looks different you know it's about also a lesson in looking and feeling actually how does this make you feel and it's interesting because although there's mirrors in it they work in a very illusion ways and you think you might see yourself immediately in it but you don't I think with the painting with the installation is the kind of hard-edged lines and the containment within them is sort of things that are kind of flowing out like life does can be quite tricky and art world relationships can be really tricky and messy <laughs> and having things that are clear 
but at the same time illusionistic is sort of about an experience of the art world too somehow mm. thinking about it and about our conversation and the real world push and pulls and real world is tenuous and tricky <laughs> absolutely and perhaps it draws attention to the illusion that buildings are more sturdy and more permanent because your work originally was very much about buildings and places, sort of utopic and dystopic ideas about the promise of places and also about housing estates. So mm. it's come quite a journey from, if you like, the certainty of places almost from the outside, from the external right into the inside of places and the the pliability of space and I had said to Justin recently that I would love to see them as permanent even though that would oppose your work to some degree but it would be a great experiment to see some of it become a permanent public display so that people could come in and walk around them like a maze. Once you get into the city of London, a public sculpture of that order would throw into question all the surrounding buildings and all the certainty. I mean, look at where we're at now. There's nobody there. All those buildings mm. have gone from being completely necessary to empty. I mean, it's a stunning reposition of what we think is ordinary. I agree. I think where my work was, and people look at my archive <laughs> paintings, they'll see it's quite different now than what it was 10 years ago, as it should be, I think. Well, it's also so nice, sorry, just very quickly to see that, you know, I'm not from the UK. I've only ever lived in London. But you, on the other hand, have done work around the Bede estate and referring to Manchester and Lewisham, very detailed paintings of wallpaper and embroidery. So you've cast a net a lot wider than, than what I have. Well, I'm a Londoner. I painted about things I knew. I painted about housing estates. And I was really curious about buildings and what they represented politically, historically, and the actual spatial experience of living in a place like that, and the humanity in them, and how that's sometimes forgotten by governments. So I did a few of the housing estates in Elephant and Castle. And also, at the same time, all of those places are now gone, and they've been turned into posh villages. Of course <laughs> um, they have. Um, I did a lot of Things around Kidbrook Estate, which is now Kidbrook Village, and those places don't exist anymore. But when I was going around and photographing these buildings, I would read a lot about them. And the Kidbrook Estate, there were 26 families in an 8,000 hectare worth of buildings mm. left empty that were stuck in a no man's land because they bought their flats because they thought that was going to help them in the long term. And then being stuck in the no man's land and knowing that they were going to lose. And I think the humanity in buildings is a very big story. And I've talked a lot about the psychology of buildings and I'm very sensitive to space and how it's used and how I feel other people use it. It's a very sensitive thing for me. Though it's gone from the exteriors of buildings and maybe representations of them in some ways, it's still about how a space makes you feel and whether you feel danger or whether you feel that you could walk into a space that is welcoming. They're all sort of captured in the paintings and works. Now, even the, the installations, like if you feel disoriented, if the piece is making you feel a little bit dizzy, and that's also about how you feel about space. I'm glad you mentioned that dizziness because in the earlier works there's a lot of broken glass and a sort of violence that's happened, a sense of destruction 
Whereas now it feels a lot more subtle, but also before there was much more of an idea that you were showing us something, whereas now you're sharing something because one person's sense of danger is not another person's. We all have very different thresholds and there's a, I mean, I even remember a work where people kept repeating, tripping over the same place, <laughs> including my husband. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> They're a bit hazardous. They are hazardous. Because, yeah, people can't quite tell and they're also looking at one part of it and then walking into another. <laughs> but, you know, that's life, isn't it? It's hazardous. <laughs> Absolutely. We were talking before about the art world and in the book there's a very long section about the narrator and Janos meeting Sir Gerald Banks and his wife. And I didn't really agree with all of what was written. I felt it was John Burge's experience because the sort of person who... Gerald Banks is positioned as this sort of all-powerful person without the sense of real risk that the painter has taken was a type of collector but there are lots of types of collectors now and you could throw criticism that way at different collectors that they're not discerning enough etc whereas I think things have been thrown a lot more wide open and of course, some of the most enthusiastic collectors, even though we would collect on a very modest basis, is artists themselves, because we all want each other's work, <laughs> which is really nice. But I don't want to go too much into this. There are a lot of issues about art and where it's funded. And Janos refers to the humiliation of being financially dependent, which he is on his wife. And now we're in this situation of lockdown and we have a lot of artists who are not able to access funding because their jobs, which were not secure in the first place, now don't even exist. It sort of becomes a big boiling pot, doesn't it? Which John Berger has done when you start talking about assessing all the components of the art world. Well, first of all, he is diminishing the art world into something very simple, which there are actually lots of art worlds, not just John Berger's art world. And there are lots of different sorts of collectors and there are lots of different artists making work for different reasons. Different things propel us, don't they? Because Janos at one point says, do you think Picasso was making paintings for rich apartments? And of course we know that he wasn't. But we also know that Picasso had an incredible drive and very much wanted to be famous. Where do you feel you sit in all that in terms of access to funding, the difficulty, especially now in lockdown, of funding drying up for people. I mean, it's a very insecure existence, isn't it? Yeah, it is a really insecure existence. And I think what's really important to say about people who decide to be artists is that what people don't necessarily understand is that to be an artist, that there isn't any specific career path that you can follow it's different for every single one one which to be honest I wanted to avoid <laughs> in a way because my father was an artist and his life was very unstable financially not good at all and I didn't want that for myself then again I have managed to have a career in a different way because it's different times I have different qualities and so on being an artist is seriously risky even when you're being so-called successful in other world terms and how other people People judge artists' success. I'm making massive work that, by and large, isn't sellable. 
And I made that decision because I want to make the work I want to make. And I know that's what drives me to continue to be curious rather than sales and uh, so-called fame. To kind of go back to what you said at the beginning is that the art world that John Berger describes in A Painter of Our Time is an art world I recognise that I have encountered and not been a huge fan of. And so, I mean, a long time ago, I decided to create an art world. As you say, there are many art worlds. So the one I've been spending the last 10 years of my life is to create is a nurturing place that isn't about purely capitalist goals, that isn't about ruthlessness, that isn't about capitalism, really. (laughs) I'm not criticising that for people that make their money from work. I think the thing that is described in the book is the imbalance of relationships between artist and gallerist and so on. And I remember, (laughs) I laughed so much yesterday. So there's this bit and it says, um, when this gallery decides they're going to go and visit him, and they're only going to visit Janos because another successful artist has said, you should have a look at this guy. That whole part says so much about the art world. He makes them a lot of money, so they'll take a punt on this guy that he's recommending, which is how the art world also functions, word of mouth recommendations. They go and visit his studio and they say, the fat man looked like an official unit inspecting a harem. The young one looked too tired to respond in any way. I thought that was great. You know, I've had sort of bad experiences like that as well. I've had people that have spent an hour with me in my studio looking at my work, then ignoring me at an art fair, you know, and really wanting to be in a much more civilised way of being in the art world. I'm a curator, mentor, which is also why I chose the book, because I think this whole kind of gold pot, the end of the rainbow for so many artists is to get a gallery. And I think the moral of this story is that it wasn't everything that it was cracked up to be. And in my reading of it is that it felt rather hollow when it came to the Mm. actual exhibition of standing around drinking wine and talking about fashion or something I don't know but going back just a bit you were talking about the way that you've decided and committed the last 10 years or so to creating a different sort of art world that as you say is more nurturing you started zeitgeist art projects in 2012 I think it was with Annabelle Tilly and you also wrote a book with her what they didn't teach you in art school which by the way I bought along with Ali Smith's Autumn and Kathleen Collins book Whatever Happened to Interracial Love because they were all orange so that was a little orange buying moment of mine at Burley Fisher Books in Kingsland Road. And you're also a curator and people do speak very highly of you, just so you know, about your curating role at Collier Bristow. So, of course, about the concepts that you show and the stories that you tell in the works that you select and in the exhibition titles and the exhibition themes, but also in terms of your commitment to bringing the artists and the artist audience together, where you have a lot of events, artist tours, and you have curatorial tours. Is there anything you actually don't do? That's probably a shorter list. That's very kind. Um <laughs> So before I actually ran Zeitgeist Arts Projects, I'd run a project for two years in Deptford called Core Gallery. Because uh, I ha- felt hang like- on, Rosalind, just a sec. I just have to let my dog out of the room. <laughs> go on, off you go. Chop, chop, chop. Sorry, I'm back. 
I started running arts projects because of my own need to connect with people and create this art world because my experience sort of for the five years after art school was like scary and isolating and made me feel quite vulnerable and I thought there has got to be another way <laughs> to power myself and by doing my own projects and I'd sort of you know been involved in some great projects run by some great people and some not so great and treated badly and also treated well you know and people helping me but yeah I wanted more for myself and I recognized that was a very common story with artists I needed to be less dependent and I think the idea with a painter of our time it's sort of he's very dependent on his wife he is a little bit of a stereotypical male artist of a particular age and generation I'm afraid <laughs> yeah. to say yeah. but yeah he's quite self-absorbed self-obsessed so it's not the character I want to be <laughs> or feel I am actually although there's lots of wisdom in his words that kind of artist is it seems like an archetype but it isn't in a way and so rereading the book again thinking how different I feel I am to him I suppose in his personality traits more than his experience of being an artist but yeah I don't do enough reading in answer to your question normally <laughs> when it's not locked down I'm going to try and amend that I do those things not only to help artists like I'm not that selfish because it gives me a lot of pleasure and I learn and I the, you know, there is a huge amount about being an artist that we, Justin and I, have often talked about and with mm. other people. Is there is a very social aspect of wanting to communicate and talk and explore ideas. And I'm always fascinated to hear why somebody's made a piece of work and why, and to drill down into the whys. Mm. And some of the fantastic artists that I've exhibited in my shows that have become friends and colleagues, you being one of them, that we get to delve a bit deeper, I suppose, and not just be about this sort of superficiality of whether you've sold a painting or not. I uh, want to get beyond that with the mm. work. In the conclusion of the book, Janos says that if we think of ourselves as special creators, we are wrong. And I thought there was a little bit of truth in that, actually, because I feel that there are lots of people doing creative endeavours. And OK, some of it is fine arts, but also some of it is about being resourceful. You can have somebody who's looking after somebody in care who needs to creatively think about where a vulnerable person might need more help or might need less help. And I think that there's a demand for creativity in a lot of areas, be that commercial or not commercial areas. So I quite liked that line. Even if you agree with it or disagree with it, I thought it was a good prompt for thinking and to sort of take on a sort of responsibility as well. But you didn't really want to be be an artist. There's a long story in that. To the first point, really, I do think that there is, again, this idea of what artists are and what they do and somehow what can be rained down at them is that they are, like Janos, maybe selfish to be pursuing a career in the arts somehow and not talented in other areas. And I think that what is also undervalued is the role of the arts. What is everyone doing in this corona time they're reading and they're you know looking at art now, what would this be if we didn't have those things mm. whether that's national theatre playing productions or whatever tv shows games that are all made by people that are being creative problem solvers and doing something to enrich your lives and I think that's even more important now and that shouldn't be Absolutely. undermined and yeah of course nurses and doctors are more important than artists in their way I don't think that they're mutually exclusive I don't think that you can hold them up against one another or compete with one another. We all have our roles to play. 
And actually, the fact that artists are problem solvers mean that they could be looking at things from a different perspective. So that's a really important thing to say. And yes, I wasn't going to be an artist. I was going to study English and drama. I did a foundation course at Camberwell and went and saw Chelsea College of Arts and... I had a very compelling position because I was at that point going into textiles rather than fine arts because I found the fine arts department at my foundation course and not a very pleasant place for me to be in personally. I found I liked the freedom I had in the textile department to create what I wanted to make so I could be free there without politics (laughs) in a way. I have a deep love of materials and I went to Chelsea to study textile design which was very very fine art based for me because I was in mixed media and it was all about experimental surfaces and pushing ideas really hard to create something that no one else had ever invented before so I did lots of projects that was like manipulating materials into other materials and I found that really interesting and then I was in love and I was like well I'm going to go into the fashion and textiles industry because that's more secure but I can be creative then I was sort of seduced into applying for the Royal College of Art and got in and then went there and then had a total turnaround in terms of the fact that I didn't want to go into fashion and textile industry I wanted Mm. to be a painter I did work a little bit in the textiles industry and that's even more unstable than the art industry in a way (laughs) (laughs) so um don't say that I'm always romantic about the textile industry somewhere in my head I'm doing that When I was at Royal College and when I decided to go down the route of essentially becoming a painter, at my degree show, I sold some work to general public people. And Mm. that was kind of a compelling argument for myself that this could work. However, in all of this, I got a good 10 years of part-time job in health regulation to support my schooling so that I could have a practice as an artist. And then I started to work in teaching and curating. So that kind of evolved, let's say. I had no idea. I love all those chops and changes. Long may they continue. I get the sense, and I hope I'm wrong, that any small endeavour that you make at the moment, you have to have a whole degree backing you up. And I refer to your book, actually, where you've quoted Jordan Baseman from Art Monthly. As you know, Jordan's quite an established artist. So for him to be still saying this in 2016 is worth remembering. And it's about the artist that you are and writing your art statement And he says, I'm still figuring this out, how to be the artist that I would like to be. I don't think it's a static thing. If you are lucky, it is a series of investigations and questions. And I really love that statement coming back to the construction of your work, where you want it to be pliable. You want it to be forever able to move and be something about structure, something about emotion and loyal to both. Yeah. And I want my artwork to be an endless investigation for me as well, as I said, and the audience. I never get tired of looking at the installations. It brings you different depths looking at things. And it's really exciting to discover something in your work after you've put it together if you see what I mean it's much more fluid when it's a modular installation or sculpture for me but yeah paintings are exciting in a different way well with both things there is a bit of an intention of how the outcome will be they both work in that way but you know there's always things that will evolve in both things over time but endlessly composing with both things I think and trying things out speak of investigations and questions what do you want to do after lockdown I just want to see people and see my work again that's currently locked down in various galleries. Oh, yeah. Um, 
The social aspect, to come back to that really, getting together with people and looking at art and the conversations and having a drink and some lovely food and obviously seeing my wider family, my mum and dad, and that's a big thing. We have a studio at home, so it's not that different to being in lockdown than some artists who can't get to their studios who are trying to make do with a kitchen table whilst having kids and all the rest of it. We're really lucky in that mm, sense. Mm. The difference being that there is just a huge amount of anxiety and anxiety for other artists and trying to share resources to help other artists and doing my best to keep things alive online, as we all are, really. And I would ask you what book you're reading at the moment, but I know it's Wolf Hall. Are there any other books? I'm nearly on Bring Up the Bodies, I have, you know, <laughs> which is a second of really mental. <laughs> Justin pulled out another John Berger book called G. But yeah, I mean, I, I always have books on my book stand by my bed that I hope to read. So I try and line them up as a sort of ambition. I was going to say, another book that sort of ties in a little bit with the um, painter of our time is there's a very good writer called Martin Herbert. He wrote a book called Tell Them I Said No, which is about artists that shun the art world. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, I used uh, a little bit of his text for one of my essays about people basically not believing in an artist until they're told to. I mean, that comes up in John Berger's book as well, doesn't it? Because they talk about that there's a correlation between the artist being a success and fashion you know you hope that you will come into fashion which is awful I don't want to end on that point <laughs> very different good point about a failure and that was um at times failure is very necessary for the artist it reminds him that failure is not the ultimate disaster and this reminder liberates him from the mean fussing of perfectionism perfect Rosalind Davis thank you so much for today it's been great to have you as a guest on Art Fictions my absolute pleasure. It's been fantastic talking to you and thinking about the whole kind of book and my practice. And it's been really a wonderful thing to focus on. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who have inspired me to create this podcast in the first place. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. As always, please subscribe please review and of course get in touch with me directly if you'd like any more information via my Instagram which is artfictions2020 or my website gilliannipe.co.uk. On these you'll find images of Rosalind's work as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Otherwise and also happy reading and art viewing till next time. One day is just flowing into the next. The, somebody said, what did you do on the Easter weekend? I'm like, it's just like every other day. I mean, time, what does that mean anymore anyway now? It's weird, and the stillness of the city, you know. And also right now as well, the last couple of days where it's gone a bit grey, a bit like...